there, and welcome to this spring edition of Grow Radio, brought to you for the other corners of the virtual sheds in the real gardens. I'm Frida Morrison, and it's a pleasure to be back with you in the real garden here now. And I'm, I'm looking at the, the buds just about to burst into life. You can hear the birds just enjoying themselves in the background. Well, a few of the buds have actually burst already, like the viburnum. And the bees have been enjoying the blossoms on that for a while. And, of course, we've got hellebores out there. And the crocuses are beautiful this year, standing to attention in other smart clays. And, of course, the daffies, the daffodils. We're going to be hearing more about the fascinating history of daffodils in this programme through Dave Mitchell. And we'll hear from him later. And our cook, Claire Patterson, has been putting together some half-a-fine recipes for us. Some for the fine weather, <laughs> and some for the nice fine weather. Like a, a lot of us, we've had a, a late spring. We gardens covered in snow, actually, and made that long ago, but, oh, but we'll cope. So, a thought further ado, we'll just wander down the garden path and get the season started. Come on, Wimmer. Welcome the Grow Radio. <laughs> and through the garden into our virtual shed. Now let me introduce you to my companions in our Edinburgh shed. He for Ken's Athing a past curator of Edinburgh Botanics and new deputy chair of the National Trust for Scotland. Hello, Dave Mitchell. Hi, Frida. Mark, it's grand to be back and talking about gardens and hearing a blather about the magic they bring into our lives. Isn't it just? No, I've mentioned you're going to be speaking about daffodils, but what else is going to be in your focus? Well, I'm going to be talking about a wee bit on veg and, you know, all other bits and pieces that I think has come in. So there's some interesting stuff with folklore and choosing what to grow, etc, etc. Aye. In our Loch Aber shed, our star cook, come in, Claire Patterson. Hiya, Frida. Good to be here. Good to be back. Uh, uh, we were just speaking that we've got sunshine on the East Coast. Have you got sunshine on the West Coast, by any chance? No. <laughs> but at this time of year, it feels like there's never sunshine on the West Coast. Oh, but no. we'll get there. We'll get okay. there. Give us a taste if it's on your menu, Claire. Uh, we got a soup today to use up your bits and bobs in the, the freezer and the store cupboards. We've got a lovely cake with the first rhubarb of the year. And then we've got some breed recipes because I know you're you're all about the breed at the minute. We're all about breed this, this last few weeks, aye. And in Edinburgh, in the Edinburgh studio, the money that steers us through the wiggly waves. Come in, Richard Werner. Aye, aye. How are we doing, folks? What's been happening in your garden this spring, Richie? Oh, do you know what? I've actually started off with a topper. I've managed to start a job and finish it. So my beautiful garden <laughs> bench rotted away a couple of years ago and I never quite got around to sorting it out. So <laughs> a couple of rattle cans of red. I refinished the cast iron ends. Beautiful glowing red. And with some reclaimed timber, I've rebuilt the thing. And it's fantastic. Wow. So uh, somewhere to sit. Brilliant. I'm proud of you. What about the bairns? Are they enjoying the spring buds? Oh, aye. They're loving it. 
and they've been uh, noticing the beautiful yellow flowers in the forsythia and they've been out with a packet of seeds already we've uh, we've hoed we've raked we've scarified a couple of beds and they've been scattering and they're enjoying all the bulbs and naming them as well so that's been quite good fun and you've also been hacking doing your grounds with Andy Hedge I've heard <laughs> there's rumours that, that, that a forest has been removed aye she thinks uh, it's a hedge but it's a mighty forest in our back garden so uh, it's got to come down hike <laughs> it hike it <laughs> he does not like Lolandi. He's in the own garden. He does not like Lolandi hedges. Say what? It's mulching up just fine, though, so I'll be using a bit of that later in the year, so I'm happy with that. Best place for it, it's a chipper. Aye. Uh, Dave, just when we're on that, is, is it okay if, if he mulches it? Is it okay to, to use in the in the Burns play area, a mulching Lolandi? Well, I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be over enthusiastic about that. No. Oh, that's good to know. That's, that's that plan out the window no. then. It's got a lot of resins and stuff in it. It's got to sit for a long time. Fair, okay. Aye, that's what I was just thinking. I didn't like to kind of just say, "Well, I'll be careful, but I'll get David to." It's good to know because like would have just went for it, so that's cool. Huh? <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Okay, right, lads. On with the questions. As is expected, we have a few about growing veggies, but we start with micro veg growing on the windowsill. Dave, over to you. Well, you know, microveg is a bit of a rage now, and it's really easy. It's a great way of introducing children to gardening as well. All you really need is a couple of watertight seed trays, and you can get them in the garden centre or you can get them online. You want a wee bit of absorbent matting like grow felt that's cut to fit the tray, or you can use coconut mat. You can even get seed germinating paper. And, you know, if you're thinking, oh, what a fast try to get all these things separately, you can get them as a kit for around a tenner. Now, I grow on my windowsill from a company called Marshalls and a company called King's. I get a micro-leaf basil called Dark Opal, and it's brilliant on tomato salads. It's great with soft cheese and crackers, and it's even better with prawns. I get a micro-leaf mustard called Red Frills, which is lovely. It has green and red shoots. It's off a tasty in a sandwich with a wee bit of beef or a wee bit of ham. Or you can cut it and chuck it into among your stir-fried vegetables, and you get micro-leaf broccoli, Microleaf coriander, microleaf radishes and cress, and I'm trying a new one this year, an amaranth called Red Army, which is bright, bright red, and it's very nutritious, and it, I think it'll look great on a chicken salad. And all you need to do is cut the mat, put it in a tray, fill it with water, drain all the excess water out, sow the seed evenly on the top, remember to keep the mat moist, don't let it dry out, and within a few days on the windowsill, it'll have started to germinate and grow. And within two weeks, you're ready to harvest your crop with your kitchen scissors. And what I do is I have two trays on the go at once, and I usually put a wee bit of cane down the middle of each tray so that I put one variety on one half the tray and another variety on the other half. That way I get a choice, and I sow the trays a week apart, and that way I've got a succession right across the season. Brilliant. Grand. Okay, fit about growing veggies outdoors. Fit can we sow the new? Well, there's quite a few things you can do now that the weather's warming up. Remember and get your main crop potatoes chitted. You know, you should be having that done now or by the end of the month. And as the soil starts to warm up and you've got it prepared into a fine tilth, you can think about sowing beetroot, carrots, Swiss chard, kohlrabi, lettuce, leeks, radish, turnip, peas and perpetual spinach. All of those things will do outdoors in early to mid-April. And inside, if you've not already done it, get your cucumbers, your sweet peppers, your aubergines, and your tomatoes going 
Um, ideally, they should, your tomatoes maybe should have been going a wee bit earlier, but you've still time. And don't forget your celery. If you're living in a milder part of the country and you got your broad beans started a few weeks ago, it'll soon be time to put them out, maybe under a wee bit of fleece, and get your shallots and onion sets in. Basically, there's no time to be sitting on the garden seat and thinking about what you're doing, you need to be getting busy doing it. I've only just that fixed my garden seat. <laughs> He's just fixed his garden seat. That was a wee hint to Richie. Aye, oh, and, just, and just remember, Richie, if you've not got them pot-growing fruit trees and bushes planted, you want to get them in as quick as possible. Fair. Oh, jeepers. Kenneth, I'm just started reading out my greenhouse. Never mind sowing things uh, in my greenhouse. But you're in the far north. You're a month ahead, you know. <laughs> okay, dinner rub it in. It's just how we need. <laughs> <laughs> We've just finished with the snare here. You know, we've been big finished. Finished. Ah, 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 ah. Providence. Well, finished. Uh, well, maybe no, but I so just started <laughs> to read the, the the greenhouse and oh, usually usually usual mess. Starting to scratch, trying to get nothing looking bonny and scrubbing down the, the benches. But never mind, leaving veggies aside for a minute. Right, Claire, give your first to our recipes. Well, today, Frida, I'll start with a nice soup. So we're coming into the hungry gap time of year. So the winter veg is finished, the summer veg isn't here yet. And there's also this tomato shortage. So this is a way to use up lots of bits and bobs and a good vegetable soup. So it's a cupboard and freezer minestrone. So this is where you can use like bits and bobs you've squirreled away during the summer. You might have some frozen blanched French beans. You might still have a couple of parsnips left in the garden or a leek. And then you combine that with your tinned pulses and your tinned tomatoes. And you've got a really good and flexible recipe. So you'll probably need about a kilo of vegetables in total for this in whatever combination you've got to hand. Uh -huh. um, so you start with sweating a chopped onion a couple of sticks of celery and a diced carrot and plenty of olive oil. Add in a wee bit of crushed garlic, a bay leaf, a couple of sprigs of winter savoury or maybe some chopped rosemary if you've got it and a good squirt of tomato puree. Then add in any of your leeks, your diced root vegetables, your potato, give it a stir and then pop in a tin of tomatoes and a litre of vegetable stock. Simmer that until the vegetables are tender and then add in any frozen beans, peas, kale and some broken up spaghetti with a can of cannellini beans or burlotti beans. Simmer that until the pasta and vegetables are tender. Add in a wee bit more stock if required and you season that with salt and pepper. And there you go. <laughs> that sounds just fab. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your Chuck it all is, in. Chuck uh, it all in. Chuck, that's my kind of cooking. I'm going to Italy in my head. I'm yeah. yeah. Bit of sun. Rhubarb and almond upside down cake. That sounds Aye, great. Because we've got a rhubarb started. So we, I managed Aye. to pick a few stalks last week um, wow. through the snow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just a lovely cake. You can serve it warm as a pudding or you can leave it to cool down and then have it with a cup of tea. You want to have your oven heated at 180 Celsius and take an 8-inch cake tin, line it with a wee bit of parchment paper, spread over that parchment paper a teaspoon of soft butter and a tablespoon of soft brown sugar and then arrange about 400 grams of your trimmed rhubarb that you've chopped into short lengths, maybe about an inch long pieces. Put that to one side, then you make a simple sponge from 125 grams of soft butter 125 grams golden caster sugar, 125 grams self-raising flour and 125 grams of ground almonds. 
with two eggs and half a teaspoon each of baking powder and almond extract. Beat that together for a couple of minutes to get a smooth batter and then spread it carefully over the rhubarb. Bake it for 30 minutes and then allow it to cool for maybe 10 minutes before you turn it out. And like I say, that's lovely. It's lovely warm with a dollop oh, of something creamy. Goodness. That sounds so good. Okay, Dave, I come back to you for mere wisdom of the elders. Now, this being spring and spring delights us with hosts of waving daffodils. We take them for granted, but they have a story. Over to you, Dave, for part one of the daffy story. Well, you know, Frida, daffodils are amazing things. We, we, we take them for granted. And when most of us think of them, we think of a single flower with a large yellow trumpet, something that looks very close to the wild daffodil, Narcissus pseudo-narcissus or the Lent lily, that you see in hedgerows and woodlands, kind of inspired Wordsworth to write the lines of that famous poem that a lot of folk will ken. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats high over vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. But the popular name of the daffodil has its origins in the early herbals of the botanists such as Tabernay Montanus and Parkinson and Turner, way back in the 1600s, who referred to it as daffodilly, or even daffodowndilly, or even it was called the bastard daffodil. That meaning false, that meaning false. And that was a reference to the fact that daffodils had no medicinal value during that era when the asphodel that was known as aphidilly or aphidile was used to treat coughs and colds. And I think that, and a lot of other people mm. feel the same, that that's probably where the common name came ah, it's from. it's very near. Right, what about the Latin name, though, when we're on the names, Narcissus? Well, the Latin names thought to have come from the Greek word narco, meaning to grow sluggish or stiff or to become numb. And in Greek mythology, the, uh, the Furies, the goddesses of vengeance oh, and retribution, were said to have put daffodils in their hair because it gave them the power to stupefy their victims. And there may be some truth in that, because daffodils contain natural alkaloids called lycorine that are known to have that effect. Today they're actually being looked at for their potential um, as an anti-cancer treatment. Mm. But returning to that word Narcissus, I think it's most likely linked to Ovid's narrative poem, The Metamorphosis, that tells us the story of the arrogant youth and boy Narcissus, who was admired from afar by the wood nymph Echo. And sadly, he repudiated Echo, and she said to have wasted away until only the sound of her voice, the Echo, remained. And as a punishment, she cursed the young youth Narcissus and requested that he be confronted with unrequited love. And in time that came to pass, when Nemesis, the god of revenge, made him fall in love with his own reflection in the surface of a clear pool. And he was so fascinated by his own beauty that he couldn't move and he eventually wasted away. And his sisters, the Naiads and the Dryads, they are said to have shed bitter tears because of his death, producing the yellow flowers that we see sprouted today. Lovely. Right, apart from growing wild in, in our gardens, the, the daffodils have uh, any other connection to Scotland? Aye, aye, they do, they, 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 they do, you know, there's, there's quite a few. 
you know, involving their cultivation and their breeding. And, you know, there was a man called Peter Barr who published his book, Ye Narcissus, which kind of doubled as a catalogue for his nursery. And Barr was originally from Lanarkshire, and he worked as a gardener with William Burbridge. And he developed a classification system working with Burbridge. The two of them developed a classification system. And he encouraged, Barr encouraged the Royal Horticultural Society to form a Narcissus Committee that's still in existence today, known as the Bulb Committee. He had a huge collection of rare plants. He acquired things from his predecessors, the Backhouse family, who bred over 430 cultivars. He acquired Edward Leeds' collections. In fact, Barr became known as the Daffodil King. And towards the end of his life, he left the Runnanese nursery, which was very successful, to his son. And he set off to travel around the world, lecturing and promoting the virtues of daffodils. And he had extended stays in South Africa and Australia and in the United States. And then if we come up to your neck of the woods, we've got in the northeast the celebrated daffodil breeder Major Ian Brodie um, mm -hmm. from Brodie Castle, known as the Brodie. Brodie was so committed that in the flowering season, he wouldn't leave his collections for a single day. He absolutely stayed at home. He tended to their every need to ensure successful pollination and hybridization. He had a, a military mind. He was a military man, and he arranged his plants in neat rows in the wall garden. He kept every detail about the crosses he made in his stud book. And in his lifetime, are you ready for this, he raised or he made some 12,500 crosses. Wow. But he concluded that only 185 were worthy of a cultivar name. And some of them, called like Dunkeld, Loch Fine, Sunda and Therapia, are commercially available from growers today. But if you just want to see his work, go to Brodie and visit the garden. It's a great way to celebrate spring. Dave, thank you very much. I think I can't go near that. Does, does Omni care about the mythology and other attachments to daffodils? Richie, did you get on your No, that? this is all news to me, and I am loving it. This is fantastic stuff, Dave. Claire, fascinating, eh? Oh, aye. Definitely. Right, Mr Mitchell, we will return for part two. Now, I had the pleasure of joining around 800 folk at the Scottish Real Bread Festival at Bowhouse near St Monan's in the East Nuka Fife. And oh, fit a day that was. You'll hear more about the event in our forthcoming Scots Radio programme, and we've got a special feature about the event on our Scots Radio website. It was packed full of folk wanting to buy breed, and folk wanting to care more about bacon breed and fit grain to use. It was fascinating. And of course, the growing of grain is just part of the food chain that is so important to us, the consumer, and of course the producers. Now, the news has been full of stories about empty shelves in shops, and that's, of course, for far gardens and ground the rain comes wheel to the fore. But we have, on many occasions, spoken about the horticultural skills we have in this country. And any of my favourite folk to speak to about growing anything is Pete Ritchie through the food organisation Nourish Scotland. I met up with Pete at the Breed Festival in the Bowhouse and asked him, first of all, for his thoughts on the shortages of vegetables in some of our major supermarkets. In the short term, this isn't primarily to do with the weather. Um, you know, it's, there's all sorts of things linked into this. Um, and Brexit's obviously one of them, and the difficulties in getting, you know, the, the slowing down of that supply chain. But 
the other factor, obviously, is that because the UK government didn't subsidise glasshouse producers over the winter, there's been reduced UK production of glasshouses. So Thanet Earth down in London you know, supplies about a third of the UK's cucumbers, but that's been on go slow because its energy bills have gone through the roof. So we've, been more, we've had to suck in more imports from Europe than we normally would have done. So that's another reason why there's a shortage. So the solution to that isn't complicated. You know, we used to have a glasshouse sector in the UK. We have, particularly in Scotland, stacks of renewable energy, and we're going to have more that we often won't be able to use very effectively overnight. We could run the entire glasshouse sector off renewable energy. We could grow the medveg here, and it's much more efficient. You know, we use much less water in glasshouses. Some of the glass tomatoes come from Spain and Morocco. are using 50 or 60 litres of water per kilogram of tomatoes in water stress areas. So we're importing a river of water into the UK from dry parts of the world because we're buying those tomatoes. We could grow those tomatoes here quite happily. We could create all year round good jobs and we grow them much more efficiently than they're being grown at the moment. And we, we, we have the skills, Pete, let's face it, the horticultural industry in Scotland is renowned throughout the world. You know, we have the skills here and the skills could be put to better use, maybe. They are. I mean, glasshouse skills are different, but I mean, there's absolutely no problem in, in importing some of those skills. Um, we, we were talking with two or three years ago to the government in the Netherlands, and they were very happy to have a joint agreement to do to, to technology transfer and skills transfer, have a partnership yep, with Scotland. We, you know, we'd learned this pretty quick, and we could run some absolutely great glasshouses. And whether you do those on places like Newest, where it's really hard to get fresh fruit and veg, or whether you do them on brownfield sites in Glasgow, doesn't really matter. You know, we could stick these glasshouses all over Scotland, and we could have med veg, you know, locally produced, local employment, you know, efficient use of resources, and better for our diets. Peter, pleasure speaking to you. I'm going to wait to try and find some bread now. You made me very hungry as well. I'll be speaking with food, you see. This is what happens. A pleasure meeting you again. Pleasure meeting you, Frida. Nice to see you. Take care now. Pete Ritchie, the Nourish Scotland. Now, Dave, you, you'll remember the greenhouses in the Clyde Valley in particular when you know, Pete was talking about what we used to have there. But, you know, they were renowned throughout the world for the produce they were, they were producing, weren't they? The Clyde Valley was a huge producing area. I mean, in my early years as a student, I remember making a couple of visits to the Clyde Valley and just about every rise in the hill at a valley that you came to and then you looked across, you know, you would see a sea of glass. You know, little glass houses here, there and everywhere. There was nurseries coming down the side of the road, market gardens. The place was filled with people producing tomatoes, cucumbers, pot plants, bedding plants, all sorts of things. And then, of course, we joined the EU, part of the common market. The Dutch growers were much more competitive and better subsidised. And the industry, um, sadly, gradually over a long number of years fell into decline. Um, I was interested to hear Pete's comments there just now. You know, there's a, there's a big part of me agrees with him. You know, with the right approach, the right joined up thinking and the right support, I, I would have thought certainly growing more produce at home is, uh, you know, an extremely positive thing to do and it's totally doable. And of course, a lot of tomatoes grow in a closed hydroponic system when that picks up on the fact that they don't need as much water as what those being produced in countries like Morocco and elsewhere are, where the carbon footprint is bigger, the water footprint is bigger. I mean, I've always said water is the currency of life. We get all hit up in the world about oil, but water is a much more valuable and precious and necessary resource to the existence of humankind. But it seems daft were important the tomatoes, just use them as an example, for places like Morocco, for need 
a lot of water, and but they're using up a lot of their water to transport the tomatoes to us, and we've got the water that we could use to grow our own. I just kind of see the, the logic of nature in this that people suggested there. It's a mindset, Frida. We're living in a changing world, and we need to think more about food security and sustainability, and that begins at home. And it begins by developing skills, developing new supply chains, developing new growing systems, um, and making it possible for businesses to establish themselves and become successful in doing that. Yeah, the potential is there. Do we hear the skills still? Could we, could we develop the skills? Skills are transferable. Skills are learnable. The biggest thing is people, people need to want to be gearners. They need to want to grow mm. and realise that they can earn a living at it and they can be happy. There's more life than money. And I got dealt that when I started as a gardener 40 plus years ago. Alright, a lot in there. Right, back to practicalities again. The topic of tomatoes and cucumbers, what can you suggest we grow? Just give us a, a few, few pointers. Well, we need to mind that, you know, they can be fickle. And you know that, you grow them yourself. Mm -hmm. they, they need constant attention in TLC. So you need to be canny always thinking what you choose. And there's so many cultivars available nowadays. What you really need, because of the effort you put in, you want real Kent doers. And in Scotland, my go-to varieties would be things like Shirley and Sunbush. They're both tasty, they are easy to grow, and they have awards of garden merit from the RHS. And in balance to that, things like old favourites like Alicante and Moneymaker remain favourites. And if you want big fruits, there's yin called Big Daddy, or there's a newer yin called Super Steak, which is really good. But I like the tiny wee fruits and things like Primeo, um, and there's a newcomer called Montello, which is really great in a hanging basket. Cucumbers this far north, unless you've got a really sheltered sunny spot in the patio, they really do need to be grown in a greenhouse or in a tunnel. Mm -hmm. Telegraph, Telegraph Improved are good choices in my book because they'll tolerate the greenhouse being a wee bit cooler. Market more is another one that does well. And in fact, if you are blessed with a sunny spot in a patio, maybe in East Lothian, you know, it's reliable. You could try it outside. If you want smaller fruits and heavy cropping things for pickling, goblins the fella. And then I forget, I love it, the name of it. It's called Burpless Tasty Green. It has good disease resistance and it's got lovely, soft, much more edible skin. So wow. plenty to choose from there. Thank you, Mr. Dave. Right. Richie, you've been quiet for a while. Uh -huh. and, I, and I promised to give you a, a, a chance to ask a few questions because I tell you've got Thank them. You. What have you got? Well, just came up. Uh, this is a wee bit going off topic now because we've been talking about growing, but I might come back to that. So I've got a lot of lovely wee bits I can hang hanging baskets on at the front of my house and in my front basement inside the studio here. Mm -hmm. And I've been neglecting that for several seasons for many reasons. But anyway, I'd really like to bring my hanging baskets back in abundance this year. So I'm looking for best practices and plants for flowering baskets, right kind of annuals and trailers. I want colour for ages. I want to know when to plant them. And I want to know if there's anything that will make them a bit different from the norm. Nothing, well, nothing easy, yeah. <laughs> pl plenty of stuff on hanging baskets, you know, Richie. Uh -huh. As I see it, you know, you've got to think, first of all, where's the hanging basket going? Is it in full sun, partial shade? Is it windy? Or is it in a sheltered spot? Okay. How are uh -huh. you going to water it? Are you going to use a can? Or are you going to invest in making sure you've got a hose and a lance nearby? 
are you going to use water storing gel in the compost? That would interest me. Mm-hmm. You know, that helps. Whatever you do, whether you choose cans or a hose and a lance or whatever or gels, you need to make the whole job as easy as possible going forward. Okay. So the basket gets the regular attention it needs and it doesn't get ignored and it's no left to dry out. It's awful. Personally, I, I, I invested in a hose and a lance. It's right. fast, it's effective. And I only use the can to liquid feed once a week from May to August. Choice of plants, well, I'm kind of traditional. I love to see trailing lobelia in them. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I like black-eyed Susan, as it's common name, Thunbergia lata, uh-huh. fuchsias, geraniums. They're very resilient. New Guinea impatience are very good. Um, pansies, trailing ivies, nasturtiums are all doers and good value for money. Petunias will do well in a sunny spot. Uh-huh. Things like begonia, semper florence, and verbena, they can be a wee bit fickle if the watering's no up to speed. Um, you can try being a wee bit different and use things like ferns and succulents and even grasses. Or if you can get it, there's a thing called Lotus Bertholotii, the parrot beak, which has lovely silvery foliage and red light lobster claw flowers. Oh, you know, it's it's a great choice. If you want to try vegetables, Aye. herbs and alpine strawberries mixed together with pansies can be eye-catching. Oh, I've seen people do mixed leaf salads and cherry tomatoes and dwarf beans and peppers. Personally, they're, I think they're better in a tub or a raised bed. Uh-huh, you just uh-huh. get the attention that they do. It's ever much bother hanging them up high. I've even seen hanging baskets done with succulents like aprocactus and cirripedias and crassulas and echeverias and sedums. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine a hanging basket filled with like a desert garden and okay. if it dried out uh-huh. a wee bit, you know, would that not be sunshine and leaf? You know, oh, be, very that good. That would be pretty cool, you know, oh, hanging like outside the door. <laughs> I, think, I think people need to be adventurous. I like a good, strong metal hanging basket with a mm. liner. It gives you better options. Always think about contrasting flower shape and colour and leaf textures. I've even done hanging baskets for the winter. Really? I don't think we make enough of that because you can put heathers in them and heaths, winter flowering pansies, oh, hellebores. Nice. You can even put snowdrops and crocus and oh, winter iris and miniature dust in them, you know? Oh, just. Aye. Be bold, be brassy, be mad. I really want to get creative with my baskets this year. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing that I would suggest is just look online. If you Google Uh hanging baskets under images, you'll get loads of ideas. I've got a really good image of that, uh, the Alpine Strawberry, actually. It's a nice trailer, isn't it? And I've never thought of mushrooms up there before, you know. But you know, I've I've done a a roaring roaring success of one of the mushrooms, my tamthooms. Uh-huh. Because you can take the seed off, you know, at the end of the season, store right. the seed, grow them again, shove them in the, the, the hanging basket, cover with some compost, and away they go. Amazing. You know, just, they're just amazingly easy tantrums and they're full of colour. Thank you, Mr. Dave, oh, for the, thank the you. answers. That's and cracking. thank you for the questions, Richard. That's, mm. that's fascinating. Okay, it is with great pleasure that we return to the Hebert and find Claire Patterson in her kitchen. This time... Tapping a queue for the Scottish Real Bread Festival, you've come up with some simple breed recipes and a fabulous or to use clear. That's right, Frida. So I'm going to start with the easiest breed you can make, which is soda breed. It's basically a big scone. There's no yeast. You have it on the table in not much more than half an hour and um, anyone can do it. So 
what I usually do is you need about 50% white bread flour and then the other half you can mix it up with whatever seeds and grains and oats and anything that takes your fancy. So for this one today I've used a bit of spelt flour and a bit of rye flour and some rolled oats for some added texture. And the other thing you need for it is buttermilk which reacts with the soda, the bicarbonate of soda and the soda bread. If you didn't have the buttermilk you just get a pint of normal milk and put a wee bit of lemon juice in so it kind of goes a wee bit curdly and that gives you enough acid to make your bread rise. Mm. So to make this, you have your oven at 180 Celsius and then you mix together 250 grams of strong white bread flour, 100 grams of rye flour, 150 grams of spelt flour and 100 grams of rolled oats. Add a teaspoon of table salt, a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda, and then just rub in maybe about 50 or 75 grams of cubed butter, um, which just helps with the flavour and making it a wee bit a wee bit more rich mm-hmm. and helps it keep its moisture. Mm-hmm. Add in enough of your buttermilk or your soured milk to make a soft dough. Give that a wee quick knead, not too much, and then form it into a round and plop it on your baking sheet. You need to cut a big deep cross through the middle of the bread. Um, mm-hmm. Now... That's really to help it cook through, but also I've been told it's to let the fairies out. So you've got what, to do that what, what, or it will not work. A wee, back a wee bit, you put a cross in the side of you to let the fairies out. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd draw your attention to this. this the, well, the, it's, it's the tradition, I believe. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you need to bake it for about 35 minutes and then just let it cool slightly, but it's nicest when it's still warm. Okay. Now, I know you're going to go on to your broccoli top focaccia. Well, you've, you've sent a photograph of the bread you made because you have. had a day bacon. And we're going to try and get that back that. up on the site. It looks fabulous. On to you. <laughs> on with you again, and, and Claire. So focaccia, it's a yeasted bread, but it's, again, it's very, very easy. It's very straightforward. And you can top it with anything you like. And some folks can make them look like a real work of art with all kinds of beautiful flower bouquets made out of vegetables and things mine wasn't quite at that level but i topped mine with some purple sprout and broccoli and some cheese and some caramelized onion so for the dough crumble 20 grams of fresh yeast or you can just use a seven gram sachet of dried yeast into 400 mils of warm water leave that for a few minutes and then add 500 grams of strong white bread flour to a bowl with two teaspoons of table salt and four tablespoons of olive oil. Add in that yeast mixture, which will have gone a wee bit foamy, and combine it thoroughly. So you can knead that with a stand mixer if you've got one, and then it's basically no effort at all. Or you can do it by hand, um, and you just want to keep kneading that away until you've got a lovely soft and smooth dough. Cover it, leave it to proof for about an hour until it's doubled in size. And while that's proven, cook a chopped onion and some olive oil until it's soft and starting to caramelise. Grate about 100 grams of cheddar cheese and trim up your purple sprout and broccoli. If you've got any big thick stalks, you maybe want to cut them in half lengthways. Once the dough is proved, heat your oven to 200 Celsius and line a baking sheet with parchment and then a good drizzle of olive oil. Take about half your dough and you want to stretch that out into the corners of that baking sheet to form a thin layer. Top it with a bit of your cheese, your onion, 
and then the other piece of dough and you sort of squish that together so you've kind of got a sandwich and it doesn't matter how it looks because it's going to be lovely when it's cooked. (laughs) Top that, press the broccoli into the top of that and sprinkle over a wee bit more cheese. Leave that to prove for maybe another 30 minutes just to give it a bit more life in the yeast and then into the oven for about 25 minutes until the bread's golden brown and the broccoli's tender. Oh, clear. Oh, clear. I mean, the, the photograph alone is beautiful of that particular bread. And thank you for that. But as I said, we'll put the, 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 the photograph of that one up on, up on the site. All right. We finish with the second part of the daffodil story. Fascinating stuff. Dave, fits the next bit. Well, as I see it, Frida, I don't care what folks say, spring's no arrived until you've got big drifts of daffodils in full bloom in the garden and all along the road verges. The sheer volume of variety and different types of daffodils leaves me in awe every year. After 50 years plus as a gardener, I, I never fail to enjoy their contribution to the garden. But I have to admit, on occasions, I'm flummoxed. Because you can, there's over 26,000 different kinds. Oops. 26,000 different types of daffodil. If they've been raised over the years, how can you, listen to this, hope to know thickens to grow? Well, I think the key lesson that I've learned is to study the bulb catalogues carefully and choose a combination of cultivars uh, or species that will give you a succession of flowers from early January right through to late May with your main show in March and April. And that succession is not only great to look at, but it's very important for the nectar that it provides to early flying insects, Mm -hmm. especially short and long-tongued bumblebees. So that's succession. Choose what you like, make sure you get a succession. Now, is there any way that folk can see lots of flowers, you know, the names in the same place and, and get advice? Well, there is actually, and it's just coming up. The best and easiest way to get a real good glimpse of the daffodil world and a feast for your eyes is to make a visit to the Royal Caledonian Horticultural Society Spring Bulb Show. Check their website for details at thecali.org.uk and here you can learn about the work of the RHS Daffodil Committee um, found in the 1950s. You can get an understanding of the different flower shapes, the 13 different divisions that there are, trumpets, large cupped, small cupped, doubles, triandrous, cyclamenius, poeticus, miniatures, bulbacodiums, etc. If you want a book, I would recommend Noel Kingsbury and Joe Whitworth's lovely little book called Daffodil, published by Timber Press in 2013. It'll give you a great understanding of the history of them and what's available. And the RHS A-Z Encyclopedia of Garden Plants is a great resource on any bookcase, and it's got a lovely set of information in it, specifically on daffodils, that explains all the different classes and gives you the choice. And you can sit there and garden in your armchair and mark your decisions. Right, big question. Set varieties do you like or would be happy to recommend? Ah. The things that are the must-haves. Well, I, the ones I'd be happy to spend money on that would give me a succession of flowers would be Narcissus Dutch Master, Narcissus February Gold, Narcissus Geranium, Narcissus Ice Follies, Poeticus Var Recurvus, oh, and I'd hit have King Alfred as well, just because I like it. Right. Good on you. Right. 
Set about other spring bulbs. Set uh, your thoughts well, on Well, I love mushroom drops, Galanthus and Avalis. I love them. They need to be in the garden. We different gems, and there's lots of named cultivars and double forums. And another favourite of mine is the winter aconite, Aranthus hymalis. It's got little golden chalices with a little golden ruff round about them. They always, to me, seem to be standing to attention. They make me smile. It's like they escaped out of the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland, you know. Mm -hmm. They come out of the Queen of Hearts as Gearden and they're marching along there. They're super. And they, they come up before other things, you know. They're very nice indeed, you know. Right. Okay, crocus. Do you hear crocus? Favorite? Aye. Oh, well, I love to see them planted in drifts in the lawn. They can look good on the border at the side of the path or even just in a pot. And there's a myriad of colours, purples and blues and bronzes and yellows and whites and some stripes and others just elegantly plain. But me, I've got a soft spot for Crocus thomasinianus. It's a species, reliable, early flowering, plant it in a sunny spot, and it's pure joy to behold. Beautiful violet flowers, that open in the sun to reveal a bright orange stigma and anthers, and it's a great source of important nectar for early flowering um, bumblebees. And, you know, I like wee things like Iris reticulata and Iris histrioides, they're lovely wee blue-purple charmers with yellow markings on the falls, grape hyacinths, muscari, you know, oh, yes. bubbly wee flowers that look I as though they're them. effervescent. The they're great hyacinth. for bees, you know. Aye. I think, really, for me, Vita Sackwell-Vest, she noted in her poem, The Garden, April, the angel of months, the young love of the year. With that in mind, I would just encourage our listeners to create a corner in their garden for a few of the wee treasures that we've spoken about. Put them in in abundance, you know, somewhere maybe that you can enjoy them for the window of the house, the kitchen window. Mm -hmm. and remember, there's still a chilling the air in April, as my grandmother used to say, never cast a clout to my beaut, climate change or not, I still think that's wise uh, and Of course, it might, it's a Mayflower, near a, near a month of May, you know, it's the Mayflower we have to take note of. Yeah, that was fascinating again, I got a box of grape hyacinths, uh, muscari, as a present, and I'm going to plant them throughout the garden this year. I love that. I just love the oh, colour of them. The I, I like grape hyacinths. They're, they're bonnie. And they look really nice if they're planted in among things like Erica Carnia Springwood oh. Pink. They look lovely. I had mm -hmm. a pot for a number of years with both those things in it together and a few little miniature daffodils. And it was always a heartwarming thing to see as you came back to the house in a spring day. Spring should make you smile. Plant flowers for spring. You've enthused us again, you know, despite the snow, despite the murky weather, despite the dreech weather, you've enthused us and looking forward to spring. Spring is springing. That brings us to the end of this programme. We spring into action in the garden. Well, some of us do. Some of us are springier than others. And thank you for joining us again. It's time to close the sheds. Fee Claire, Dave, Richie and myself, enjoy your garden. And join us again. Bye the new.